Welcome back to the Verified Athletics Podcast. If you're enjoying the podcast, please support it by spreading the word. You can subscribe and rate the shows on iTunes. You can tell a friend or a family member to give it a shot. Or you can just share it on your Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, wherever. If you have topics that you'd like to hear discussed on the show, reach out to us on our website, verifiedathletics.com. Sports are captivating. When we think of sports, we think of moments where teams and individuals rise to the occasion and perform. We think about defying the odds, persevering, and overcoming. We also think about those who crumble under the pressure. Either way, the results of competition are etched in stone forever. How can you be on the right side of history? Sports are a game of inches. There's not much that separates winning and losing. A detail here, an extra second of preparation, anything that can give you a competitive advantage to be an inch ahead of your opponent is critical to your success. But so far in your career, you've probably only worked on the physical and tactical aspects of the game. With this newly designed book, My Mental Playbook, Zach Eder, a mental performance coach and a former Division I football coach, and Leon Abravanel, CEO and founder of a high-performance training camp, invite you to develop your mental skills that are crucial to performance. In this book, you will learn which mental skills are helpful to use and develop a system of using mental skills during warm-ups, during performance, and in reflection. But most importantly, you'll be given an opportunity to practice the mental skills through activities, and then at its conclusion, you'll create a playbook of mental skills that are customized and tailored towards your individual success. Continuing to develop as an individual and as an athlete is incredibly important in your life and in your sport. If you're really serious about being an elite athlete, you have to focus on the mental game. And this book, again, it's called My Mental Playbook. It'll help you get there. I really believe this book can help you. And because we like it so much, they gave us a discount code. And you can enjoy the book for 15% off. The code is VERIFIED15. Remember, VERIFIED15, V-E-R-I-F-I-E-D-15. It's simple. Just go to their website, mymentalplaybook.com, add a book to your cart, and then add the code VERIFIED15 at checkout. This is a generous offer, but it's going to end soon, so buy it now, and you'll be grateful that you did. Luckily, today, I also have the co-author of My Mental Playbook, Zach Etter, as my guest on the podcast. He's a mental performance coach and a master's of education in athletic counseling. He's worked with over 70 athletes on eight different college and youth sports teams. But before that, Zach worked with football coaches at three different Division I schools, including UConn, Delaware, and at Fordham, where he served as my special teams assistant. Enjoy. All right, welcome back. We got uh, Zach Etter here. Uh, Zach, why don't you take a minute and introduce yourself? All right, how's it going, Nate? Uh, Nate and I coached together on the uh, Fordham University football staff in 2014, so I actually haven't seen you since then, have I? Or I don't actually, think I think so. I spring, maybe I went to a spring practice one of those days, like the following season. Yeah. Um, yeah, but uh, so I'm, uh, I currently am a mental performance coach. I stepped away from coaching a couple of years after that and uh, went back to school to get my master's degree in sports psychology. Uh, it's actually officially called athletic counseling uh, with a faction of sports psychology. Uh, so, yeah, right now I'm working with teams and athletes on uh, developing their mental skills and increasing their mental performance. And by that, I mean, you know, their ability to control their emotions, to remain positive when, you know, they're faced with adversity, um, to stay with their goals, continue to be motivated, work well together, communicate better. Uh, we really talk about how there's three aspects of sport. There's the physical aspect, how big, strong, and fast you are. 
the tactical aspect, which is what the coaches are there for, the game plan, strategy, and where to line up, what plays to run. But the mental aspect of the game is something that, you know, there's not a lot of awareness about. And if people do know about it, they they tend to have a hard time knowing how to work on it or get better at it. And, it, and a lot of times that's a difference between winning a game and losing a game, being a D3 recruit or a D1 recruit or, you know, making it to the league or not is, is how proficient you are at that aspect of the game. So it's been fun working with athletes to try to get better at that. So what's the difference between, you said, sports psychologist and and then athletic counselor? You said, is it synonymous or is there a difference? So it's not synonymous. Uh, when, when someone refers to sports psychology, uh, there's a lot more research and scientific-based approach to that. Uh, it's not that counseling isn't a science, but when we say counseling, it's really just the one-on-one holistic well-being of the athlete. Uh, I focus on you know, we call it the four domains of life, a a student athlete's academic life, their athletic life, social and personal lives. And the belief is just that all four aspects of their lives need to be functioning at a high level in order for them to perform. So while if I was a sports psychologist, I'd probably be doing a little more research-based study, uh, a little more qualitative analysis and meta-analysis of studies that have been done to show what increases performance. Uh, right now, I work with athletes on their individual needs. Maybe it's issues at home. Maybe it's issues in the classroom. And, you know, with the hopes that if they improve their lives in general uh, from, you know, a holistic standpoint, then they'll be better players. I see. So your focus isn't entirely on just like the the edges that give you a better sports performance. It's more of just the counseling in general of an athlete. Is that fair? Yeah. So it's it's a, it's really a, a counseling degree with a concentration on working with athletes. And because of my background with coaching and my experience with football, I'm able to do that effectively. Uh, But right now, uh, I'm pursuing another degree, a licensure to be a therapist, which has nothing to do with sports, although I will work with athletes once I get it. Um, But yeah, it's it's a faction of sports psychology in the sense that we work together with sports psychologists and you know, I use a lot of research in sports psychology to do my job. Uh, but first and foremost, it is counseling, one-on-one group settings, uh, but with the attention to increasing performance. So given that uh, that you focused on this, obviously a lot more than I have, what's the most interesting thing you've learned? Uh, definitely the most interesting thing I've learned is that every athlete has something going on in their lives that are affecting their performance. So nobody is performing at this peak optimal mental level. And I think what's interesting is that coaches are are usually just unaware or unwilling to think about that. So, you know, you're out in the field and I'll, I'll walk out to practice because I go watch my athletes practice and coaches will be yelling at guys for lack of effort, which is fair. They'll be yelling at guys for like having bad body language and a bad attitude, which is fair. And I just, but I always wonder, you know, like how much time they're considering, putting into considering why, you know, why is that kid's effort not what you want it to be? Why is his body language poor? What's going on with him? And there's, you know, we know there's only so much time in the day that those coaches have to worry about things like that. Uh, But there's always something going on with someone or perceived, you know, maybe it wouldn't be a big deal to you or me, but it's a big deal to that player. So to have somebody to work through those things with with athletes and whatnot really yields very positive results once you get them back on the field. Yeah, that's um, 
that is something I always made a part of my coaching, although I wonder how much it actually rang true, which was that there was the idea that during practice games and meetings, like the expectation was that your mind was there for the athlete, that their mind was going to be there on that thing. Um, and that I wanted to be there for them as a coach to help them with whatever they had going on in their lives. I mean, I viewed myself as being someone that was responsible for their development, not just as an athlete, but as a person. And uh, so like I was committed to doing that, but I thought that separating the two out and trying to enter every meeting and practice in game with without the other things was always like the thing I tried to coach. But I wonder how realistic that really was. Well, I think, you know, we would, you know, even sitting in on your meetings, we would do check-ins with the players, like ask them what happened during their day, ask them if anything's new. And that's great. But I wonder how comfortable a player of yours or mine would have been in a room with his peers and his player and his teammates to say, you know, I've actually been really depressed lately, or I had a panic attack last week. You know, and these are things that are happening all the time and more, it's becoming more and more prevalent. And where we are with society with mental health being less stigmatized and more openly talked about, I'm not sure that's completely translating into a locker room of Division One athletes or a football coaching staff where the expectation is to be mentally tough and the expectation is to not have anything bother you. So a lot of times when we see athletes on the field, we assume that they're fine or when we ask them how their day is going, they say great with a smile. And that's usually not usually not the case, but a lot of times they have things going on that they're not telling us about. Yeah, they um, <laughs> that's that's almost got to be true for a for a 19 to 22 year old. And, you know, a lot of high school athletes are all this, you know, part of that, too. You know, they're they're all dealing with their own things. And even if you know, like everyone has different things that are the most troubling thing in their life, but everyone has a most troubling thing in their life. And that occupies certainly some aspect of their mind. Yeah, I love the way you put that. Because what I always say is everybody's biggest problem that they have going on is objectively the same, right? So subjectively, you know, we might consider something more important than others. Like maybe my biggest problem isn't the same as, you know, a starving homeless person on the side of the road. But the biggest thing that occupies my mind all the time is the biggest thing that I deal with. So it's the most important to me. You know what I mean? Just like it would be your most important problem would be something that occupies your mind the most and that you struggle with. Yeah, that's true, probably to an extent. I think that there's probably a there's probably like an in between there where it's not an absolute scale where the same problem to me is the same problem to someone else. But at the same time, it's, you know, not everyone is walking around with the same demeanor at all times because they're dealing with a different set of problems. Yeah. So what I what I found helpful is, um, you know, I go I go to therapy once in a while and I've been on and off for, you know, my adult life. And I think what I find really helpful and especially with players is when they take the field, they're not just focused on football or whatever sport they play as much as we like them to be. They're trying to. So sometimes it takes an active effort to be in the present moment and not worry about those things. And we say, Hey, leave everything off the field. I mean, I know with coach Moorhead, we literally had them put negative thoughts in a box, you know, metaphorically when they walked on the field and that's great. But I think having somebody to talk to that they see regularly that they trust and that they know, understand sports, they can come to me before practice 
and talk about their girlfriend and talk about that bad grade that they got and talk about the pressure that they're feeling from their family and the friend who let him down that week and get all those things out so that by the time they take the field and they're ready to go to meetings and they're ready to go to practice, they've already dealt with those things. You know, they've already talked about it. So it's not as much in the front of their mind as it would be if they were keeping it all inside and bottling it up and not talking to anybody about it. Yeah, I've actually been around two different coaches that use that and to give it a little bit more uh, color for people that are listening, uh, we would have kind of like a, I don't know, it was like an open box on a pedestal on the entryway and exit from practice. And as you're going into practice, you put your hand to your head and then you take it to, to that box. And the idea being that whatever it is that you're carrying around in your head, you're going to leave it and pick it up on your way out. And on the way out, you grab your thoughts back, basically and put it back in your head. And, and we did that, like you said, um, with Coach Moorhead at Fordham. Uh, and then Coach Shiano at Rutgers also did that. Uh, I imagine there's lots of coaches around the country that are doing that. I, I think, I don't know if it works. I, I imagine that's like the kind of thing that works um, a little bit early on. And then pe- it just becomes something that people do out of habit and don't really actually think about why they're doing it. Um, but so I think there's lots of different ways to, to attack this problem. It seems like one of the ways to attack it is in that way that we're discussing, which is to try to reduce the amount that you take those outside problems into the athletic arena, whether it's practice or whatever. And then the other way to, the other way to handle it is to reduce actually the size of those problems. So do you focus on one over the other, or is it just, you kind of hit it from all sides? So I hit it from all sides, but there is a third effective way of going about it, which is developing mental coping skills. So being able to regulate your emotions and being able to control your thoughts is something that can be worked on. It's something that you can get better at, just like running routes and different techniques can. And, you know, what we do is we find, so basically, let's say that, you know, the typical movie where a coach gives this rah-rah speech before, and then the team freaks out and they get excited and they run out from the locker room to play the game, right? That doesn't work for everybody, right? There's some players who want to have their headphones on, listen to their own music. There's some that want to call their parents or some that want to be left alone. So I work with athletes at finding what we call the zone of optimal functioning, that emotional zone of optimal functioning, where, you know, if they need to be, you know, if they need to listen to country music or if they need someone to tell them, you know, that they're great or, you know, whatever they need to go out there emotionally and perform. We try to get our athletes in that zone. And then the idea that everyone just has these thoughts that aren't always true. You know, like we have our own conversation going in our going on in our head at all times. And a lot of the thoughts that we have aren't accurate. I'll give you an example. A kid might say, you know, I can't learn the playbook, right? Whatever I do, I can't learn the playbook. The true statement is I haven't learned the playbook yet. And the difference between those two from a confidence standpoint, from just like a life standpoint is huge. So it's like, let's work on how to do that. So I think talking about the problems, trying to lessen the problems, but also just reframing the way that they look at the problems and getting them in a state where they're ready to go perform despite the problems is what I do, if that makes sense. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, So for these athletes that are trying to to like cope with these problems what is like good practical advice you said like get into their zone like is there a method to determine how to do that or an athlete can go through to figure that out 
it's a little bit trial by error. You know, I mean, at this point, athletes have played in many, many games. They've gone to practice many times. So just kind of doing some some reflection on what's worked and what hasn't. Um, like I said, trying some different things, listening to some different music, having some different conversations and talking to different people before practices and then seeing how that translates on the field. Uh, one skill that we talk about is compartmentalizing. You know, so you have that academic, athletic, social and personal life. And a real challenge for not just players, but coaches, too, is how do we how do we compartmentalize? How do we keep something from happening in our social life from bleeding into our athletic performance? You know, and how do we how do we keep, you know, that bad grade out of, you know, spending time with our family? You know, we want everything to be functioning at a high level, but we want to do so independently of each other and be in the present moment when we're there. So, you know, there's mindfulness meditation exercises that we do to return to the present moment there's uh we call it a thought check-in which is like hey what thoughts are you having are they true are they in your control what could we do about it you know we compartmentalize we get in a good emotional state we talk about what's bothering us and then we kind of get it all out there feel supported go to practice and hopefully perform at a better level than we would if we just weren't addressing anything that was going on i kind of liked your idea there of, of kind of you, you, you meant it in more of like a trial by error s- standpoint, but I, I think like the idea of practicing your pregame routine of course, for yeah. practice mm-hmm. is, such, is such like a, a valuable tool. I think a lot of guys, you know, especially if you're the type of person that tightens up for a game that like it yeah. takes you a while to get loose. Um, it's probably because you before practice, athletes are generally very loose in the locker room. There's like messing around and, they're, you know, they're kind of rushing in and they're goofing off. And, and then they're just like kind of jogging out to the field before a game. It's a totally different atmosphere. They're getting their hours in advance. They're ha- going through some like intense routine. Mm-hmm. And I wonder if that routine and that change is the thing that can trigger that tightness. Maybe, maybe for some athletes, it's the thing that tr- unleashes the beast, you know, but uh but for some athletes, I imagine that it it does trigger that tightness, and to the extent that they could replicate that game day experience, you know, at least through their through their habits um, for practice, or at least on a somewhat regular basis for practice, it might make them feel more comfortable during a game. So the book that I wrote, uh, my mental playbook, um, it it goes through the the way that it's set up is chronological. So the first section of it is mental skills to use pregame. And during warmups and how to loosen up and how to kind of get in the appropriate mindset to start the game. So the intro to the book before we even, you know, get into any of the skills is holistic athlete being well balanced, compartmentalizing and having those, you know, it's kind of a self check in there and then goal setting and motivation. So we want to have properly set goals. We want to know what our motivation is. We want to be internally motivated and we want to be well balanced. So before the book even gets going, we need that. But the pregame warmups is dealing with performance anxiety and dealing with, you know, the physical tightness that you get from the belief that this is a big game and this is important. So there's different breathing exercises that both the book offers and then I obviously, you know, work with my athletes on that have a physiological side effect of lowering your heart rate and lowering your blood pressure and bringing you into the present moment. So there's things like that that we do to kind of deal with that anxiety we kind of, I kind of offered players in the book an opportunity to create their routine from a mental skills standpoint. And again, if you, if you consider the sport and you consider performance in those three domains, the physical, tactical, and mental, 
when we plan, I mean, you know, we, staff spend a lot of time practicing and getting ready. Like, what should our pregame look like? You know, how do we go about game day? And, and staffs talk about that. And, you know, we talk about getting them physically ready. So, you know, we'll do, you know, these sprints and these drills and whatnot. We do seven on seven and an individual to get them tactically ready. But how much attention are we paying to their mental stress and their anxiety about the game? And, you know, they're maybe they're unconfident and maybe their parents are here. Maybe their parents aren't here. Maybe they're worried about getting scouted. And there's all these things that are so hard to think about as a staff. But I think a general routine that works on those mental skills can help with any performance anxiety and attachments to the game. Like this game's important. You know, I, I think I think coaches do think about that stuff. I, I think that they're probably totally unqualified to actually render a realistic opinion on it. Right. But but I mean, like they do think about it. Like I'm thinking about when we design pregame routines, like there's just a million different things that we do to make sure that that like you want things to kind of like be flowing and going well. I know that, um, you know, a lot of teams like as part of their pregame routine, they have uh feel like a field goal kick is like the last thing before they go into the locker room or an extra point kick. Mm-hmm. And I've been on teams where the field goal kicker might not be that good. And right. you just, you just didn't want to risk that you would miss it or that you would have a bad snap or a bad hold. And so, um, so instead, you know, they would do a punt to, to end the, uh, we did a punt, didn't we? Yeah. So it was, exactly. So I've seen it, um, where you do stuff like that. I don't know if it, that was for that reason. That might've just been for other reasons. I think, uh, Coach Moore had like the whole team rushing at the other team, mm-hmm. um, and so it was like I think that was more of like an like a, an intimidation thing. Although I don't know how much teams really get intimidated at that kind of time, but you know when you're good though, I think when you are good as a team, other teams do watch you in your pregame, and they're like looking, you know, mm-hmm. they're trying to get a sense of what you look like, and um, and if you guys look, if you look really confident to the other team, I don't know if that has some effect that could cause them to to be more nervous or more easily accepting defeat, you know, when it comes down to it. Yeah, I think it certainly does. I think so you, I mean, you exude a certain amount of energy with your body language and and the way that you speak and the, you know, things that you say and the way that you carry yourself. So I think, I think what it would probably do is just reinforce a thought that was already there. You know, so if you walk in, if you walk onto the field and you're like, yeah, we're going to beat this team today. Well, but wait, they look pretty good in warm-ups. I don't, I don't think that's what happens. But if you walk in already worried and already thinking that you might lose and then the other team looks bigger and stronger and faster and more intimidating than you are, yeah, I, I definitely think that can reinforce like a negative thought that's already there. Yeah, we know? had this uh, – God, I can't – we had this – were you ever there when we had a guy named Steve George? No. No, okay. So we had this guy. He was, um, I guess, a graduate transfer student from England. He had never, he hadn't played that much football. He played like football that they have in England, which is obviously um, not quite at the same caliber. And Mm -hmm. we had offered him for a one year division one scholarship to play offensive line. Um, He was like six, eight, 330 pounds, like legitimately looked like an NFL caliber, like body athlete. And ultimately really just didn't have enough skills, couldn't develop them fast enough to play. Mm -hmm. Uh, But I know this, that, he was the first guy off the bus, and when we went to, when we went to, to warm ups, he would always do the jogs around the field, and <laughs> just to let the other team see him. Um, I mean, he was he was such a good athlete for how big he was, um, and so looked the part. 
that he didn't even start for us or barely even played for us at the FCS level. And still, I think the Buccaneers brought him into camp. All right. So, yeah. you know, that, that's, uh, that does speak to it. It would be interesting to see how much, you know, to quantify how much players let things like that affect them. Because obviously what we preach is you want your guys to worry about themselves and their job and what they have to do and nothing changes no matter what the other team does. But that's just also not realistic, you know, because people are human beings. And Well, you wouldn't and, preach that unless if people, unless if you thought that people actually would be victim or, or could fall victim to that. Yeah, that's true. It wouldn't be worth your time to try to correct that if, if that wasn't a thing that happened. But, you know, just thinking, you know, going back to, you know, the, the performance anxiety thing that we were talking about, there's something called it's the it's the ABCs of cognitive behavioral therapy. So you have an activating event, a belief about the event and consequences because of your belief. All right. ABCs, activating event, belief and consequences. So an activating event could be like a championship game, right? That's the event. Your belief about the championship game is that it's important. And then the consequence, because you think it's important, might be anxiety, right? So you can't change the fact that there's a game. You can't change the fact that you get anxious when you think it's important. But what we could work on and what I could work on is that belief about the event. So rather than, oh, this game's really important, it's an opportunity to play the game that I love, or it's a escape for me to be out here and be able to just focus on football and whatever it is, whatever I could find with that athlete to change that belief about the event, to make it something that they're anxious about to something that they're excited or grateful or happy to be there about that gets them in a state where they're more capable of playing. And the issue to go back to the warm up thing is you got 80 guys on the sideline. It's hard for a staff to do that individually with each player, you know? So when the head coach gets in front of the team and he says, you know, we're going to, bring bring them up by 50 tonight and you know we're gonna we're gonna take them down we're gonna win the conference is the biggest game we've played all year at least a third of the kids in the room he's scared you know what i mean he's making more nervous and there it's just a it's just a tough obstacle as a coach when you have a big room of guys to try to adhere to what each one of them individually needs and that's why we have a staff at springfield of athletic counselors that sees all these athletes individually and does workshops with the teams and provides information to the coaches to let them know, you know, Hey, you know, for this group, I would suggest this, or for this group, I think this might be a better way to go about it. And it's good information. I think the coaches here really benefit from that. Is that the, the, can you only get that type of information from one-on-one counseling or, or are there good um, testing like personality testing that's out there to help you typecast athletes into different the types that would get fired up from a speech like that versus get anxious. And maybe anxiety can be performance enhancing for some people. Like, is there oh. any, is there any science to like talk about that? So just to touch on the last thing that you said, that anxiety could be performance enhancing. When we talk about this zone of optimal functioning, we're talking about helpful emotions and unhelpful emotions. So we want to avoid the unhelpful ones and we want to have the helpful ones, but just because it's helpful doesn't mean it's positive, right? So anger is like a universally known negative emotion, but a defensive tackle might need to play that way, right? But a quarterback playing angry is like a totally other thing, and we probably don't want that. Um, so, you know, so so there are there are emotions like that 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 fall on both ways. But you know, I think there are some tests out there. There are some personality and emotional intelligence 
test, but I really think the counseling kind of brings out the why to it. So, you know, when I feel this way, I don't perform well. And let's talk about why, like, let's get into the origins of those reasons. Maybe we can change that. Maybe we can work on that. Or maybe you're somebody who needs to be relaxed or they won't function. Right. And, and I think those are what we can get more out of individual counseling. So what would your advice be for athletes? So for athletes, I think you need a routine. I think it just like anything physical or tactical, I think you need a routine to take care of your mind and your emotions and your thoughts before, during, and after games. And it can't just be, it can't just like anything else. You can't be different every time. It can't be, you know, how you're feeling that day. If you really want to get better at it, if you want to be somebody who responds to adversity is resilient on the road, on third and 12, down four with 50 seconds left and no timeouts. I mean, if you want to be a mentally tough, mentally strong athlete, you can't just decide to be. You can't just roll out of bed and be that athlete, just like you can't physically either. It's got to be something that you put time into and that you seek help with and that you work on. What percent of athletes you talk to hear this and go, that's like uh really helpful and interesting and I'm excited about trying this. And then there's probably like a ton of them that say that and then do nothing. But, um, but then like, but I imagine there's also some feedback of like, I don't have, like, I don't want to worry about this kind of thing. Like this is not, this is like hogwash or like, you know, like this is just bullshit. Yeah. So Jimbo Fisher has a quote that he says all the time and he says, you don't need to be sick to get better. Right. And that's just kind of having, that growth mindset of, you know, if, if there's a, a player who walks in the door and he's like, Hey, I have all these issues and I want to deal with them. Let's work on them. That's great. But that's very rare, right? Mostly what it is, is someone coming for the first time to counseling or a workshop and just seeing what it's like, probably in their back of their mind thinking, I don't need this, you know, like I'm not going to use any of this. But like I said, you know, when we, when we first started talking today, everyone's got something and I'll find it. Right. So I'll find the thing that hurts their confidence or that in the back of their mind, they think they can't do or this thought that they've had in their head for the past 10 years. That's actually not true. And it's bringing them down. And I'll kind of expose that for them and they could see what that feels like and what that does to their, you know, their approach and their performance. And it's, it's, it makes players and makes a, a population of people who don't like feeling vulnerable vulnerable, but so does going to lift a weight that you've never lifted before or learning a new defense or things like that. And that's why we're trying to break the stigma of mental health and of mental performance. And, you know, to try to say, it's okay to work on it. It's okay to say like, I'd, I'd like help with this, just like you would go to a, a teacher for extra help or a coach for extra help or whatever it is, you know, do you, do you notice a difference between the type of personality of an athlete that takes to this coaching and those that don't. So I imagine there's some that come in and they immediately see the value in it and do the exercises and make progress. And then some that try it and, you know, walk away from it in some way or shape or form. Yeah. I think, um, I think the, the two people who accept it the best are the people with a growth mindset that I'm going to do anything that I can to get better. And if meeting with an athletic counselor once a week, gives me a chance to be a better athlete, then I'm all for it and I'm ready to go. You know, so I think those are the athletes. 
the other athletes are the one that ones that actually have some debilitating mental health issues that they actually need to work through in order to increase their performance. The athletes that I see that it doesn't work for are people who are a little blocked up, like they have emotional or mental issues that they don't want to get into and they won't allow themselves to get into. Um, so there could be someone who sits there and they're like, yeah, my friend said this and my teacher said this and my mom said this and we're not actually getting anywhere. We're just on surface issues and they won't talk about any you know, deeper issues that are going on. And, and then the other ones are just people who are embarrassed to seek help or think that it makes them look weak or it makes them, you know, that they're going to get made fun of. And that's what's so great about Springfield is that everybody's working with somebody. So there just is no second thought about it. There is no stigma. There's confidentiality in what we do. So people don't know who's working with who and what's being said and how often. But people are receiving help from mental health professionals, athletic counselors, athletic trainers. You know, it's just such, such a, a mind, body, spirit oriented school that everybody everybody accepts it and the results are pretty significant that's great and then for coaches um what should they be doing different so i actually gave uh, a presentation at the nike coach of the year clinic in hartford last year to coaches and i actually i like working with coaches more than anybody because coaches who go to these clinics and and go to these speeches, they're trying to get better, right? They're there to incorporate some new information into the way that they go about things. And the the speech that I gave was how to incorporate these mental skills into their coaching routine and into their coaching style. So, you know, we talked about different types of feedback to give and different awarenesses you can have, different activities to to do with your team. And I think just understanding like we've talked about that everybody's dealing with something and I'm not saying don't yell at your players. I'm not saying don't, you know, don't be hard on them, but, but to maybe put the time into, you know, privately meeting with them and asking them what's going on and, you know, understanding that they're going to be anxious before a big game, just like you are. So if I were to ever go back to coaching, I would, I would have breathing, you know, working, with mindfulness and those deep ocean breaths before practices or before games and work that into our pregame routine. And, you know, the, not meditation, but just, you know, the relaxation and breathing. And then also just checking in with our, you know, my players confidence and, you know, their emotional state. And it's really hard for a coach. Cause like you said, a lot of them aren't qualified to do it, but I think if a player just knows that their, their coach is mindful of it and respecting that they have things going on and wants to know what's happening, I think that makes a big difference to them. Yeah, I I would think so. I I I keep on hearing I when I'm hearing you say I keep on reacting to being like god, none of, almost none of the coaches I know would I trust to like have like a like a really like um good interpretation of what the best way is to help, but maybe like just making the effort is is helpful in its own even if it's not like the most well guided. Yeah, I'll give you I'll give you like a more specific example of something a coach can do. So a lot of the times players catastrophize, right? Like they're laying in bed the night before the game. And if they're an anxious person, they might be thinking of all the things that can go wrong. And that's the opposite of what we want for them, right? Like we want them visualizing success. So what we call it is objective visualization. And it's really rather than 
picturing yourself, you know, doing everything perfectly right and you winning the game 100 to nothing, 100 to nothing or everything completely wrong and losing the game 100 to nothing to ask yourself these four questions. What is within reason the best case scenario for this game? What is within reason the worst case scenario for this game? What is the most likely scenario and what's in my control? So best case, worst case, most likely, and what's in my control. And that way you kind of get it all out there. You're like, all right, the worst case is that I blow a couple assignments and I make a couple mental errors and we lose the game. The best case is I stay true to my technique, I understand the game plan, I execute well, and we win the game. The most likely is probably that I make a mistake here or there. It doesn't hurt, badly hurt my team. I'm able to make up for it, and we win a close game. And what's in my control, I can prepare. I can get a good night's sleep tonight. I could do all the things that I need to do before the game to be mentally and physically ready to play. You know, I could ask my coach for help if I need it. So to kind of go through that checklist with your players, to wherever their mind is, to bring it back to focus and bring it back to the present moment and to ask yourself those four questions, it kind of gets everything out there. And it's kind of a healthy way to think about a game the night before a game. That's like one of the activities that I would do as a coach. So do you think the, the concept of like the positive visualization stuff is a little overrated and that there should be like more diversity in your thoughts going into a game? Yeah, because, you know, I think just like we practice, you know, goal to goal as a defense, you know, sometimes you're going to be in a bad situation. And, you know, if you're only visualizing success, I had a, I had a conversation with Sal Romano. He's a friend of mine. He's a pitcher for the Cincinnati Reds. And what if it's the top of the first inning and the bases are loaded and there's no outs and you've already let up two runs? Have you considered what you're going to do in that moment? Because your definition of success is different now. You know, your, def your definition of success is somehow getting out of that inning with a 3 nothing deficit. So when you think about letting up three runs in the first before the game, that's a terrible situation. But if it's already 2 nothing and the bases are loaded and there's no outs and you can get out of it only down 3 nothing, then you won from that point forward, right? So kind of considering all the different aspects that can happen in the game, like I'm not just going to envision getting an interception and returning it for a touchdown. But after I let up a catch, you know, where can I put my hand on the ball that's going to get it out? And how can I make sure I get that guy to the ground? So all of those visualization things I think need to be considered. And when you do that, when you think about all the scenarios, positive and negative and realistic and consider what's in your control, I think you're more ready to play the game than if you're just, oh, we're going to visualize success. Everything's going to be fine. Like we're just going to attack and dominate and all those things. Because in the player's mind, a coach, is can, a coach can tell them to do that. But while they're doing that in the back of their mind, they're like, I don't know, though, because I didn't get it right every time in practice. And I've made a mistake on the field before. So you could tell them to do it, but they don't fully believe it. So you may as well just talk about it. You know, you may as well go over positive and negative scenarios and how to, how to retaliate when the, when, and that's how you, be, that's how you're resilient to have a plan for those situations. And you might know better than I do, but I know that there's, um, people talk at least about a study of people that visualize themselves shooting free throws versus those that actually shot free throws and the, the change in their performance as a result. Um, I also kind of like, there's something in the back of my head telling me that that was like a bullshit study that actually never happened. And it was just like folklore. Do you know anything yeah. about that? Or I know a little bit about it. And I, I, I tend to agree with you because I don't think 
like I could visualize playing the piano right now, but that doesn't mean I can go do it. You know, so I think you want to add to your visualization. You want to add information that's objective and real. So for coaches to provide their athletes with that might be might be something positive too. Like, hey, you know, I got this right 14 out of the 15 times that I, you know, in practice, right? So that's what I can visualize. Like, that's what I can tell myself, you know, when I'm, you know, uh, we talked to Sal, you know, the, you know, the pitcher that I had the conversation with and he'll tell himself percentages. You know, if I get this ball in the upper left quadrant, he's got like an 11% chance to hit it. So using those percentages and using real facts about your performance while you're visualizing and while you're planning, uh, really helps because your brain is smarter than that. Like your brain's not stupid. So when you visualize success and tell your brain that you could do something that you've never done before, you're not just going to believe it. You're going to have doubts about it. So, you know, what if the coach gets up in front of a team when you're in the middle of a one in five season and you're playing a five and one team and you're telling them that you're going to win, you're telling them that you're going to come through. They don't believe it. You know what I mean? You got to you got to use real facts. You got to say we had our best Tuesday that we've had. You know, we are able to exploit what they do in this way, this way and this way. And if we play a certain way, it's going to be a close game and we can take advantage of the situation and try to win the game. That's a more reasonable, realistic thing for a player to be able to internalize and accept and, you know, build their confidence about. Yeah. I mean, that all makes sense. I think that there's probably value. I would think that there's value to playing through decisions that you're going to have to make. I think that that's something that realistically you could practice outside of the practice field is thinking about the decisions that you're going to have to make. Um, and even if it's as simple as the decision to, like, I'm thinking if I'm coaching defensive backs, that when when the ball's in the air and the the wide receiver is about to catch the football that I'm going to try to come up through the ball instead of like swipe it down or whatever the coaching might be. Um, like to, even if you're not going to be like, just like to practice making the right decisions, I think that you could realistically do that. I, although I don't know. I mean, cause how different could that really be than making the decisions themselves in like a practice setting? I mean, I imagine it's not that different. I don't know. Maybe you think differently. Maybe you think about that. I think it's different in the sense that it's just another rep, you know, it's exactly. just a, it's just a mental rep. So it's just, it's more practice to be able to sit there and do that. But, you know, I'm not talking about while they're out to dinner, just kind of running through their minds. I'm talking about putting time aside to really think about it and really provide facts to it. So, you know, I've seen on the film that guy run a hitch from that spot in the field 70% of the time. And when he does run that hitch, this is what I'm going to do about it. So you're not saying everything's going to be great. You're not saying, you know, he's never going to catch the ball. You're just speaking factually and objectively and statistically. And that gives your brain more confidence than anything else, than any positive, you know, obscure visualization of winning the game 100 and nothing and I'm going to have six pick sixes and you know just to go through it mathematically and statistically from what you've seen on film and what you've practiced is is a good visualization tool that's better I have like a my own little theory that that people have no idea what how statistics actually work and that they really struggle to conceptualize what it means for something that happened 25 of the time I mean I know that people do in some ways um understand I mean they know that that means that you know, it's like a one quarter of the time. I get like that they understand it at some level, but I don't know if it's at a transactable level for people. Um, because like, 
I feel like that people in their hearts just think if something is supposed to happen more than 50% of the time and it doesn't happen, that's a big surprise. And if it's supposed to happen less than 50% of the time and it does happen, that's a big surprise. Well, and also when we say 50%, are we talking two out of four times? Are we talking 2000 out of 4,000 times? You know, like it's, you know, if we say, Hey, this guy's going to run this a third of the time, but he's only lined up there three total times and he did it once then that's not real information. You know? Yeah, that's not- well that, yeah, that's a whole other thing. I mean, but even if you knew for a fact that he's going to do it one third of the time, I don't think that people actually really understand how to, how to deal with those expectations, right? Yeah, I hear you. I mean, that's why Vegas makes, that's why they have all those big buildings in Vegas, uh, right. because the gamblers go there. They don't exactly go there to make money, so. No, well, they do, but they shouldn't. Well, yeah, that's right. They do go there to make money, but that's not how it ends up turning out. Otherwise, there'd be, uh, Bellagio wouldn't look so nice. Right. Hey, I want to ask you, what do you think, uh, you know, because I've been talking to some Division One programs. I can't really be specific right now, but, you know, I've been talking to some Division One athletic departments about how having a mental professional coach, a mental performance coach on staff can help with recruiting. And the way that I framed it was, you know, let's say that coaches walk into, you know, a player's parents' living room. And what the parents really want is for their child to be taken care of and safe and happy and fulfilled and content, right? Like they care about a lot of them care about those things more than anything else. So to be able to sit in a living room and say any issue that your player has from an academic, athletic, social, or personal aspect will be taken care of by a licensed professional mental health worker who's a part of our staff and a part of our athletic department. Not many programs offer that at all. And I feel like that would be kind of a, uh, a significant advantage in recruiting to be able to have that because obviously there's academic advisors and there's teachers and there's, you know, there's always a counselor available to, but to have, you know, a coach on staff who's professionally trained to handle depression and handle anxiety and handle, you know, performance issues and whatnot. I feel like that would be a competitive edge in recruiting for universities to have that available. And I think that's kind of the trend of where things are going as well. I mean, I would think that at some level for some athletes, it must be just like, just like anything else. I mean, it's just another resource. I think the question would be, um, an athletic department could spend their money on that or they could spend it on a nutritionist or they could spend it on another strength coach so that now the football team has their own, you know, personal strength, you know, their own strength coach just for their team, or they could spend, you know, there's, they could buy another thing for the weight room or whatever it is. And I mean, anything that you would do with that money, hopefully would, would have some sort of push on that. And then the question would be, is that the best bang for the buck uh, for that specific thing? I think the value would probably be more so in, the actual benefit that the athlete sees, you know, if, mm-hmm. if it actually does work, then I would imagine that if you could just get like an ounce more of performance from, you know, 500 athletes across a whole athletic department, you know, that would, that would, con- that would result in more wins than otherwise. And probably just having that one other win on the tally at the end of the season for a football team, probably just, just, just as much to help you recruit as anything else. Yeah, definitely. So I think, yeah. So what you're saying is like, it really comes down to what helps our team perform better. And then that's it. Right. Like that's the bottom line. I mean, so there's, there's smoke and mirrors too. I mean, there's like, right. there are things that don't help your team perform better, but look nice on a recruiting trip and maybe help you to land other recruit. That's pro I would say like that. 
the like mental coach as you're describing it is probably not the flashiest thing that you could do with that money. Mm-hmm. Um, but like, it doesn't seem it doesn't. So I'm just saying that I think it would probably be helpful. I'm sure there are some athletes and parents that would be attracted to that idea and it might be like a bounce in how much they would want to use it. But I would think that the real value would be assuming that it works right. That, that like you actually have a real impact on those athletes that, that improves both their lives and their performance. Yeah, for sure. And, and, and that's definitely well put. I think one of the challenges in my field and with my profession right now is we're trying to kind of develop this sports psychology professional field and, and realm within professional and college sports. The question of how to quantify the value of a mental performance coach, you know, so if someone says like, you know, for a football coach, it's like, how many games did you win or lose for a strength staff? It's like, you know, did the team increase in their, you know, ability to lift certain weights and certain drills and whatnot? How big, strong and fast was the team? For a mental performance coach, it's difficult for me to quantify the value of that because of the confidentiality ethics and what I do. So, for example, you know, I worked with an athlete who was all American in high school and came to Springfield and he was dealing with those transition issues and dealing with, you know, relationship issues, being away from home, having like anxiety about needing to perform like he did in high school, but he's a freshman, you know, all those, you know, common issues and whatnot. And um, now he's 11 and two this year, like his sophomore year, and he's, you know, doing much better. You know, it's an individual sport. But even right now in this conversation, I can't use specifics and I can't tell you what we talked about and what we worked on because of confidentiality. So for a nutrition, like Tom Brady's nutritionist, and he could take a picture on the field after a game and post it on Twitter. And everybody knows that that nutritionist is working with Tom Brady. I can't do that with clients of mine because of the ethics of counseling and the, you know, mental health field. So it's just difficult to talk about. It's difficult to kind of prove, you know, and quantify your worth in this field when there are those boundaries and are those ethical guidelines that you have to follow. You know what I mean? I, I mean, I I can't imagine that I'm the first person trying to solve this problem. But I I would think that I would think that there's if you're if my my way that I would try to solve it is I think that there'd be a way to have survey results and just like anecdotal evidence from players that would just say to their other coaches or athletic directors whatever that this thing is helping me, right? Yeah. So that's that's like like the anecdotal evidence. And I mean, ultimately, if this thing is is actually beneficial and I have no reason to believe that it wouldn't be there's got to be evidence right the evidence could be as simple as you get you know like this would be beyond a single person but like the field itself you get 100 sprinters right you divide them up 50 50 and you have 50 of them go through a one hour of 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 counseling and like to the extent I don't know like how much you want to if you want to like prove that like it's actually the counseling and not some placebo effect from like the thought of the counseling, then you would have like real counseling and then you would have kind of just like bullshit counseling. That's just them going. And, you know, I, I mean, like I'm a, I'm a skeptic at some level. So counseling, I think, (laughs) I think there is a huge percentage of it that probably is triggered by some placebo effect. Um, you know, just like the, cause it is all it's, it's internal in you're helping people to help themselves. Well, yeah, you're helping. Yeah. You're helping people you know, 
have thoughts and get to places with themselves that they needed help getting to those places. You know, that's, that's pretty much what it is for the most part. But yeah, I mean, it's there, we do do surveys. We do, you know, ask kids, you know, to report back to their coaches, things that they thought that they got better with things that they thought they were able to improve on because of the counseling. But, you know, it's just, it's just still a growing field. You know, it's still a growing um, idea that a athletes are allowed to have mental health issues, you know, just because they're, performing at high levels, whether that's the NFL or division one or FCS or whatever it is, you know, that they have issues going on with their lives too. Those issues are able to be worked on and dealt with just like everybody else's are. And the result for them could be, you know, an increase in performance an increase in well-being, an increase in overall happiness. And, you know, I think that that's something to think about and, and work on. And, you know, when we, when I talk to coaches too, about, um, you know, these things, the reality is every coach's worst nightmare is a tragedy happening on their team, right? So when I was on the staff at the University of Delaware, we played Elon the last week of the year and a senior on their team killed himself the week before the game. And we had to, you know, had to go through talking to them about, you know, do you guys want to play this game? Is there anything that we could do for you? You know, those types of things. But for the first time since I coached, you know, we sat around a staff table and were forced to have a conversation. Like, could that be something that happens to one of our players? And are we doing enough? And what else can we do? And, you know, to have, you know, to have that thought and have that, you know, feel like, you know, well, we're responsible for 75 kids and none of us are really qualified to deal with that. I think that's kind of a scary place to be in in a staff. And I'm telling you, man, like, social media and all this scrutiny, all this pressure that is going on with athletes and all the exposure that they have and mental health getting worse in society. Like this isn't a problem that's going to go away. It's a problem that needs to be dealt with. And for someone with your training and in your position, um, if you got the sense that an athlete was starting to have those types of suicidal thoughts, Mm -hmm. are you trained to even to deal with that? Or is that like, you just know that you can like be like an early detector and get them into the hands of like a more qualified professional for that particular thing? So my ethically, I'm able to deal with that when I finish this licensure, but no, I am trained to deal with that. I mean, we have, I have had situations like that, you know, and I've had situations where, um, you know, an athlete expressed to me that he, had suicidal thoughts in the past and that he was worried that, you know, the anxiety that he was dealing with now was, you know, going to trigger those thoughts again. And, you know, you just kind of, to me, they're not athletes anymore at that point, you know, they're, you know, obviously like their performance to me doesn't matter anymore. And you just kind of zero in on the issue, but, you know, to me, to give them the resources that they need to kind of work through those thoughts and, and provide them with, with a setting that they could, you know, speak freely about it and deal with that, but also understand the athletic component of it. Like I know what's required of them. So I know, you know, that they need to go to lift and meetings and practice and who they're playing and how much playing time they're going to get and what that game means to them. So to have all that background information from an athletic standpoint while dealing with, you know, the mental health aspect of it, I think is really important. But, you know, when you face a situation like that, again, the confidentiality is an issue because I can't go tell his coach that he told me that, you know, but I could work with him on what the best solution is 
to dealing with those thoughts and how he feels and then go try to handle his athletics. Does that make any sense? Like we could work through a plan of how to better deal with those things. And maybe it does involve telling his coach, maybe it involves telling his parents or, you know, changing his routine or, you know, taking a leave of absence from the team or whatever that player needs at that moment. But we can kind of intercept that situation, no pun intended, but you know, we can kind of, you know, step in and, and, and make a positive change on the situation before it ever gets to a point where something bad happens. Yeah. I, um, when I was coaching, there was an athlete I recruited who uh, did attempt to commit suicide as a player. And mm-hmm. um, I think ultimately like his teammates were there and saw him acting very strange and ultimately talked to him, I think down from, from his, you know, his, you know, his goal, whatever, you know, what he's trying to do, commit suicide. And, and um, when I found out, I think I found out the next day, I, I know I personally felt helpless. Like I, I might spend a good chunk of my life trying to be better at helping people to stay motivated and um, become better versions of themselves and work through problems. And, and like this, all of a sudden, like that felt like way over my skis and um, I didn't know what I could do other than just like I would with a family member or anything else, just like try to be kind and helpful and ask what I could do. Um, I felt so like professionally unprepared to handle something like that. And I, I know like in that case, we referred that athlete to like an, you know, a, a qualified professional, I guess I should say. Yeah. And I think, you know, and for those of you listening, like my experience with Nate, like you do care so much about like the day-to-day lives of your players, probably more so than other coaches that I've coached with. And in your meetings and in your routine, you made it a point to check in with people and see, how, you know, you, you knew the way that your players thought and responded to things. So that, you know, that was something that I, I definitely learned working with you and, you know, to, to put ourselves in that situation, I would just know, you know, I just have the training and the, the statistics and, you know, how things work with, so, okay, how are those friends that were there? How are they going to respond? You know, what kind of post-traumatic stress are they going to deal with? You know, what kind of, how do people that are in their situation normally handle that and normally come back from that? And, you know, being able to, maybe we work with them as a group, you know, maybe we, you know, so to kind of address it in a way that is going to be helpful for them and the team. But, you know, if, if, you know, we're talking about all these benefits of having like mental performance coaches, if there's a small chance that it helps with recruiting, and there's a small chance that it helps with mental performance, and there's a small chance that it helps avoid tragedy, you know, I think that those numbers are stacking up and adding up to make it that this position and and this profession is something that, you know, really needs to be looked at by schools that, you know, have the resources to do it. I mean, some schools don't, but a lot of schools do. And like you said, a lot of schools will buy a new treadmill instead. But, you know, I think this is something that people should really start focusing on and and looking at. And and really, it, it does come down to performance you know first and foremost but you know these are people and they have issues and they have lives and you know these coaches for the large part are responsible for those lives on a day-to-day basis so you know to pay attention to all those things is important well to bring it back to the recruiting part i actually wanted to pick your brain about this a little bit um i think you and i have discussed this once before at least briefly but when you're recruiting and you're trying to find the best players um the things that are easiest to measure are like the physical measurables. Like I'm going to be pretty sure how tall someone is and how much they weigh. And to a certain respect, like how fast they run and like some of these other measurables. Um, 
that's like the easiest thing to measure. So there's like, there's that physical component and then there's the academic piece and there, you know, most athletes are going to come to you with a pretty good track record. You're going to have a pretty good sense of what you're getting from an athlete, from an academic standpoint, like they're going to have a GPA, they're going to have test scores, and then you're going to have some sense of the high school that they're coming from. And with those three pieces, I'd say you could be fairly confident and accurate with predicting their academic performance at college. It's not like you don't get that many surprises, I guess I should say. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you also can then probably like the next piece is watching them play football. And there's things that come through in the way people play that are difficult to measure, but are still like clearly in the in the area of like a physical performance. Um, so you can just imagine that if someone can stop faster than another athlete, they're going to be better, right? If you're a wide receiver and you can stop faster than the guy covering you, you're going to get open. It doesn't matter how fast you are. If you can stop faster, you're going to get open. And uh, so you can see that when someone plays, even if you can't measure the the physical bit. And so like you can still see that. And so that's like a little bit, getting a little wish-washy about trying to evaluate an athlete, but it's still, um, but it's part of it. And then the last piece is, there are athletes that are other you would imagine would otherwise be equal. They got similar grades from similar schools. They got similar testing numbers, similar like height and weight. And, you know, when they're playing on tape, you see them having similar athletic abilities and one of them will be great. And one of them will be just okay or not so good or fail out or quit the team. Um, And the piece that's missing is like that you don't have a good view on there is that mental piece. I think coaches try to, evaluate that in the recruiting process but i think mostly they either do a terrible job or recognize that they can't do a good job and basically ignore it so um how does a coach figure out whether they're getting the athlete like every coach in their mind can think like of the athletes that are the ones that totally overshot their potential because of the way that they act mentally and the ones that um were way less in my experience i think that i was so terrible at predicting that that I almost I got out of the business of trying to pretend I could and like basically rolled the dice and hope for the best. Yeah, and I think a lot of staffs do roll the dice and hope for the best, and they roll the dice on the best athletes or the ones with the best film, and that makes sense. But you know, I think and just so people understand, your coaching career and the longevity of it and the success of it is dependent on how well you recruit, right? So if you could recruit, you're going to have a long successful career. If you can't, then you won't. And I think a lot of staffs bring in these recruiting classes. And like you said, some work out and some don't. And then they don't really put a lot of time and effort into why somebody didn't work out, you know, because at that point, it's kind of years later and it's hard to go back and say, like, what did we miss? What could we have seen? Uh, But in terms of finding out the mental information, I think it's just about finding out the right information. So it's not asking their high school coach, you know, like, hey, how did they do under pressure or whatever? You know, I can get in a room with a kid for an hour and I can walk out and I can tell you why he plays the game. Does he love the game? Is he going to be, is his motivation and is his work ethic something that's sustainable at the next level when it becomes more like a job and he has other responsibilities and he's exposed to different things. So I think the finding out, you know, the motivation piece, and, you know, I talk about it in the book, there's internal and external motivations. Right. So external motivations are, you know, I want my parents to be proud and I want to play in the league and I want to, you know, this to be my job. I want to make money. Internal motivations is like, man, I cannot stop thinking about football. And I love this game so much. I love the grind. I love trying to get better. You know, I love, you know, the 
like competitive, just being out in the field one-on-one with someone, you know, and you could just sense that from someone when you ask them about it. And then in terms of them loving the game, you know, asking them what they want with their life, you know, asking them what's important to them, asking them who they spend their time with. You know, if, if, if I have a recruit and I ask him who he spends his time with and he says his parents and his girlfriend, I would wonder why he doesn't have many friends. Like I would wonder why other people don't like him or why he doesn't like other people. You know, like all those are kind of there's some red flags that you could look at. Someone who, you know, has is externally motivated instead of internally motivated. Somebody whose goals are either unrealistically high or unrealistically low. You know, someone who doesn't have like a realistic sense of how good they are. You know, so if I'm talking to a recruit at Fordham, you know, if we're trying to recruit, or let's say we're trying to recruit a kid at a D3 school, you know, and he's saying that he wants to, you know, play for Alabama and be the starting quarterback of the Patriots, that's a red flag. You know, we want somebody who's in touch with how good they are, their place, you know, what they want, what they're aspiring to be. You know, I would ask them about their emotions and see if they're willing to talk about it because we know players who control and harness and handle their emotions the best are the best players. We don't want flat effect on emotional players or players that pretend that they're not emotional. So all of those things to kind of judge like an over a, a player's ability to handle all the challenges and all the anxiety and all the pressures of the next level. And people aren't really able to do that. So when they can't or they don't know how or they're not willing to, they pick the best athlete and they pick the best film. And then when that player shows up and he's late to lifting or he's not giving great effort in practice and now he's getting yelled at in the practice field for it. And we kind of missed that window that we had to say, you know, does this kid even care? You know, or is is this something that this player wants or are they here for the education or, you know, are they here to meet girls or, you know, whatever it is, you know, there's there's ways to find that information out prior to offering someone a scholarship. You know, and if you're able the, the Cleveland Indians, for example, send scouts to minor league or, you know, those kind of summer league games and they just send mental skills coaches to go have a conversation with the player and just report back to the staff with the Indians what they thought, what their impressions were, you know, before they really started scouting them. So there are ways to do that preemptively. Yeah. So like I, I heard you say externally versus internally motivated. Um, and I'm trying to think what other pieces like really stuck out as like signs that a coach should be looking for. Maybe you could pop a few off. Yeah. I, you know, external, you know, I, we want our players to be internally motivated. It's not that external motivations are bad, but we prefer them to be more significantly internally motivated. Uh, and then I was just saying, you know, goals that uh, aren't conducive to where they're at, you know, like yeah. just kind of, we yeah. want them to have a realistic sense of themselves and where they're at and where they're going. You want them to have a social support network that makes sense. You know, like you want them to have some good friends, some people that they talk to, you know, if they're in a relationship, that's fine. Check out their, how they interact with their family. You know, you don't want them to just like only spend time with their girlfriend or only spend time with one friend, you know, cause that might indicate something that's not healthy with their personality or things that they care about. You know, you want someone with a strong work that work ethic. So ask them, you know, what, how they prepare for a test, you know, like what would preparing for a test look like? And if they say, you know, that they, talk to their friends or they go to the library, you know, whatever it is, their answer holds merit and you can kind of build this profile. You can kind of build this mental profile of a player by asking them questions that have nothing to do with sports, you know, and you can kind of relate that to kind of projecting just like you would project their film. 
you know, you can kind of project what does that motivation look like at this level? You know, what does that mindset look like at the next level? Yeah, I, I am hearing you and all those things make sense. And then I'm trying to map that up against players that I've recruited in the past and mm-hmm. what I would have thought of what trying to put myself back in the shoes of what I would have thought of them at the time I was recruiting them relative to those metrics and then how they performed relative to my expectations on getting on campus. It'd and, be an interesting case study for you to go back. And well, like I'm, I'm like going through the list in my head and I'm just thinking, man, like those things sound nice, but it just doesn't add up. Like, it, like, I, like, I don't know if it's that players change too much between when they're in high school and when they're in college, like that change in in environment, moving away from the parents and new, new set of friends, new set of new structure. Um, the gaps in like what different high school football playing experiences are like for different athletes, depending on where they're coming from. I don't know if it's, um, I don't know if it's just my inability to read those things about those players, um, at that time, but I'm just like thinking of guys that, that were way better than I ever thought they would be and guys that weren't as good. And it just, I don't know. It just doesn't like line up for me. And maybe I'm only thinking of the exceptions. Those come to my mind. Yeah. People, people do change. I think my, just to kind of contest what you just said, I I wonder how much accurate information you really had when they walked in the door. You know, like I wonder if you really had a sense of who they were with those other things, you know, when they got there versus when they left. But, you know, I'm sure you had a great idea of who they were at the end of their career there. Um, but people do change, you know, like obviously people who are 17, 18 walking the door are going to be different people, hopefully, you know, than when they're 20, 21 walking out the door. But I just think, you know, there's some innate things there. Like there's that 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 aren't going to change. Like there's that innate sense of either motivation or love for the game or growth mindset, willingness to be coached, willingness to, you know, accept and admit and handle their emotions in a productive, positive way. I think those things you can, you can make a pretty accurate projection on. And again, you could take a chance on somebody who isn't great at those things and then work on it with them and they can get better, but you can't take a chance on a kid who doesn't love the game, isn't great at football, thinks he's just going to be an all pro in the league in three years and then not address those things with him and just expect him to get better and expect him to be, you know, a high functioning, mentally tough athlete. That's not going to happen. You know what I mean? So I, I think those things are able to be detected and worked on earlier than they are. Yeah. I mean, that sounds, that sounds pretty realistic, at least like to have a picture of the person that you're getting and and their strengths and weaknesses and the same way that you would focus on if they have to gain weight or lose weight you would focus on these other other skills that will help them to be you know grow as an athlete um is there any like actual studies or evidence to support like this idea that that having healthy because like those things I imagine they would apply just as well to anyone for any job as they would for an athlete. Yeah, this is what I, you know, what we do with performance psychology is not, it's not specific to just athletics. It could be any performer, singer, it could be a doctor, it could be a salesman, you know, like people have talked to me about going to make a pitch to businesses to kind of increase the performance of their sales team, you know, because it's all the same type of ideas. Yeah. So, I mean, there's gotta be research on it and, I, I mean, do you know of anything that were any places that someone could go to learn more about it? Uh, about what in particular? Well, like this idea of like, if I'm just thinking I'm interviewing someone for a job yeah, and 
if I, I want to hire the person that is internally motivated, I want to hire the person that does have realistic expectations. Like you, I don't imagine like recruiting an athlete is any different than hiring anyone for any job. Um, when it comes to like having someone have those traits is probably gonna be more likely to lead to their success. And then I was wondering if there was any study that backs that up in any way. Yeah. So there's studies. Um, I could, I can get you the information off the, off the top of my head. I'm not, I'm not sure who did it, but we did, uh, in my first class, uh, Al Petty Pie is like a, um, he was a, he started the athletic counseling program at Springfield college. And he talked about just the, it's, he called it the little foot approach, right? So it's kind of just a one foot in front of the other, uh, approach where you kind of build this relationship with the athlete and you kind of get this overall picture uh, of who they are. And the little foot, the little foot approach talks about how internal motivation and internal motivation sustains failure, right? So if you're internally motivated in something externally, and so much of sports is external, right? Even the score is something that we just kind of put a label on, you know, winning and losing, what it means with rankings, what it means with standings, what it means with scholarships and the draft. Like that's all things that are in the outside world. You know, in the inside world is like us controlling what we can control, which is our thoughts, emotions, and performance. So people who are motivated and and kind of function based on the process and those internal factors can sustain losing and and can sustain, you know, going on the road and going down 14 nothing because it just doesn't matter as much to their routine. You know, it doesn't matter as much to their process and their mindset as it does to someone who says, we need to go 10 and 0, you know, because if you go 10 and 0, or if you want to go 10 and 0, and then you lose a game, now what? You know, you have to recalibrate everything that you wanted. You have to recalibrate your goals and your motivation anytime something bad happens. But if you're someone who's internally motivated and process oriented and control what you can control, then you're kind of immune to those things. You just move forward and you kind of, you know, go accordingly with whatever's going on. So it's just, it's the type of athlete you want for that reason. It goes through resilience. You know, it's mentally able to sustain those types of things that happen. And, and it's overall someone who can continue to get better regardless of the external situations that are going on. And I'm sorry, I don't have like an exact study, you know, to, to cite, but that's kind of the idea that it comes from is that little, little foot approach with having the relationship with your client. You can look it up if you want that approach. But, um, you know, and we learned that literally like week one, class one of this program at Springfield college of, of that kind of motivation. That was really important. Yeah. Well, I know I've got at least a lot of things to, to explore, you know, after this podcast. So thanks so much for coming on. I mean, it's been really interesting, really helpful to me and I, I'm sure to our listeners as well. How, if our listeners want to learn more about you, what you have going on, where, sh- where should they find you? Uh, yeah. So like I said, I have a book that was just released. It's specifically, it's the target is for high school athletes. That's kind of the target audience, but uh, a lot of different you know, athletes of any age can use it. And like kind of we said, it doesn't have to just be for ath- athletics, you know, it could be for any type of performance. Um, but the website is My Mental Playbook. I'm sorry, the book is My Mental Playbook. The website is just www.mymentalplaybook.com. My email address is Zach, Z-A-C-K, at mymentalplaybook.com. So if anybody has any questions or if you want some free consulting or if you just want to talk about, you know, your performance or mental skills, feel free to email me. 
and I will get back to you immediately. And I just love talking about this stuff and love talking about, you know, athletes with a growth mindset who are just looking for ways to get better. You know, that fires me up. I like your dangerous move of getting your email out there for everyone to go contact you. But, uh, you know, that just shows how much you want to help people. So, you know, thanks again so much. And uh, can't wait to see, you know, where this progresses for you and and uh, see, keep on helping athletes. So thanks. Thanks again. All right. Appreciate it, man. Thank you. See you, Zach. Well, all right. Zach has a lot of exciting ideas and I think a lot of practical advice for athletes and coaches for getting better and helping athletes improve their game and really finding the athletes that are most likely to live up to their potential in the recruiting process. Still a lot of research left to do, but teams and players that can harness that type of knowledge to win the mental game will definitely have a big leg up. And if you want a copy of My Mental Playbook for yourself, go to their website, mymentalplaybook.com, and at checkout, Add the code VERIFIED15 for 15% off. It's a generous offer. It's not going to last, so go buy it now. Thanks for listening. If you find our content valuable, share it. That support makes it possible to continue to provide helpful and free content to all of our listeners. See you next time.